Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 10th episode of the Trojan Venture Podcast. We are officially in the double digits. It's an exciting time. I'm back in New York. Vivek's in Chicago. It's time for summer, but it's also time for another episode. Vivek, how are we doing? Doing pretty good. Having a relaxing summer so far, but excited to get back into podcasting for sure. I am as well. I'm as, I am as well. And today we actually have a great guest. Uh, Vivek and I are excited to welcome Joshua Kagan, who is the CEO and co-founder of Bonfire. Bonfire is a real estate platform powered by blockchain with a mission to democratize and enable anyone to get on the property ownership ladder. Before founding Bonfire, Joshua was the managing director of Clean Fund Commercial Pace Capital, a real estate fintech company. Before his time at Clean Fund, Joshua was a global operations lead at Carbon War Room, a project started by Richard Branson to utilize market-based solutions to prevent climate change. Before that, Joshua was a senior analyst at Atlas Capital, a clean tech investor in the Bay Area, and the president and co-founder of the Now Project, which created organic apparel and accessory products. Joshua has a rich background in real estate and also uh, climate change, which is really a cool intersection. So I'm really excited to ask him a bunch of questions. So Vic, you ready to have him on? Yeah, let's do it. Hey, Joshua, thank you for coming on the podcast. Hey, Eric. Hey, Vivek. Great to be here. So, you know, we're really excited to hear all about your personal and professional story today. And there's a, a lot to talk about, but... We wanted to start on the personal side first. Um, so did you always think you were going to start your own business? You know, I grew up in a household of entrepreneurs. My dad started um, his insurance company uh, 21, right when he graduated college. My mom always worked for herself. My stepdad uh, is in real estate and he has his own, you know, he, he worked, yeah, he worked for himself for his entire career. So I kind of always knew that I would have my own business. I just, I didn't really know when or how. Awesome. Okay. So like, we know you're in the real estate business. What kind of sparked your interest there? It's really my stepdad and just, he's actually a USC alum as well. And, uh, you know, just looking at his lifestyle, he, um, whether he wakes up at seven in the morning or 10 in the morning, you know, he, the checks come in every month. Right. Um, and it just, when I started thinking about what, you know, in a place like Los Angeles, where I grew up, you know, you see a lot of opulence and demonstrations of wealth. But what I, what I've realized later, you know, in my adulthood is that wealth isn't about how much stuff you have. It's about how much passive income you have, because with passive income, you can do anything you want. Right. So it was seeing how just understanding more about how real estate worked that sparked my interest. And I did my first foreclosure in 2011 in the San Francisco, uh, in, the, in the Berkeley Hills. And that was what sort of precipitated my start into real estate. So, so going off of that, you know, one of the things that we've learned about Bonfire before even talking with you is that you're trying to kind of democratize access to real estate, as you kind of brought up in your personal story. So just for our audience, could you quickly kind of run through what's the basic premise of Bonfire? Yeah, the basic premise is that, you know, many of us are told that when we're young, that, you know, you're going to go to college and you're going to get married and get a good job and buy a house by age 30. 
And the reality is that the, that the and, and, and historically owning a house is the single best pathway to achieving wealth. And it's been like that for generation after generation. Well, unfortunately, um, you know, my generation and, and the generation behind us have more student debt than any his generation in history. And so Bonfire was born out of conversations I had with my friends who are in their 20s, 30s and 40s who want to own a house and can't because of student debt, because of interest rates doubling in the last year, because of private equity buying a lot of the supply in the States, et cetera, a myriad of reasons why they can't buy real estate. And so we, and who told us they want to own real estate either directly as a house or in a portfolio. And we looked at solutions out there like REITs, REIT, Real Estate Investment Trust. And it's like buying a mutual fund, you know, it's not actually directly owning real estate. And my co-founder who came from India 10 years ago and started and sold three companies, you know, serial entrepreneur, real estate's been a really big part of his family and what paid for him to go to college. And we're just talking about it. And it just, we, we asked ourselves, why couldn't we create a platform that made it as easy um, as buy, you know, as Robinhood is to buy crypto or stocks? Why couldn't we do the same thing with real estate? And that was the impetus behind starting Bonfire. So how does like blockchain kind of play into Bonfire? Because I know it plays a big part. Um, could you kind of explain where it kind of, you know, fits into Bonfire? Yeah, so I think there's a lot of confusion out there about what blockchain is relative to crypto and tokenization. I, I imagine that your audience is going to be pretty hip to what blockchain is. Um, but I find I spent a lot of time educating older people about what blockchain is. Um but basically, let's take a step back and let's think about how real estate is bought and sold today. Well, if the three of us were going to go buy an apartment building, um, you know, we'd sign a purchase and sale agreement and we'd wire money into an escrow account and we would physically sign documents, right? We'd use a notary as signatories or whatever. And someone would go down to a county assessor's office and record it, okay? And the entire process takes days um, if not weeks, you know, when you sort of think about the escrow and, 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 you know, transferring of money, et cetera. Well, blockchain solves a lot of these old historical legacy issues of real estate. So, you know, with our platform, we can transition ownership instantaneously from one entity to another in a fully secure, immutable manner, instantaneously at, a, at costs of pennies, you know, compared to closing costs of traditional real estate assets. So there's a lot of benefits of blockchain specifically. Um, and just to clarify, you know, our tokens are all asset-based, um, asset-backed. We don't have a utility token. Um, there's no crypto element to our project whatsoever. It's really using blockchain um, for, you know, buying and selling interest in real estate. So, could you take me through what type of proper, um, commercial real estate properties do you have? Is it just houses? Is it more than that? And I guess a second follow-up question would be, you know, let's say, for example, I go on a bonfire for the first time. <laughs> what are the first couple of things I would do to start building out my portfolio on bonfire? Yeah, so we're still in beta mode. Um, you know, we've kind of done a soft launch. We're not fully out in the wild yet in terms of having... You know, hundreds of properties on our platform. But um, I'll give an example. Like last week, we sold out of um, a hotel project and it's in Marin County, which is, um, you know, the assets 20 minutes north of San Francisco, um, one of the most expensive zip codes in the US. And the sponsor um, has about $2.8 billion of real estate under management. It's done about 145 projects. 
was acquiring a hotel. It was a it was a two star um, four points hotel, and there was some hair on it. Um, basically, the seller um, had you know the, their franchise agreement had had expired, and you know in the due diligence of buying this asset, the, the sponsor found something he didn't like. That yeah, and and basically was able to get a six million dollar reduction in the price. So what what was a good deal turned into I think a great deal. And so he bought it, he's buying it with call it $60 million of total capitalization, including you know, 24 million of equity, 35 million of debt, roughly. And he, as a proof of concept, gave Bonfire an allocation into it, a small one. And this was sold out within a day. And we went back to the sponsor and asked for a bigger allocation. And we were three and a half times oversubscribed within five days. And um, I think the the things that you know, historically with the sponsor, you would need to invest $100,000 through our tokenization platform. We were able to bring that down to 2000, you know, so it's not, it's not $20, but it's still 98% cheaper than it would have been to be able to directly invest in the, in this deal. And, um, you know, we're looking at, I don't know, 22% IRRs, um, about a whole time of about three to five years, um, you know, two and a half to three times on our money. And I personally invested in this deal, um, so did my co-founder and in, in our community of folks. And uh, so that's that was the uh, yeah, that's an example of a project that that just sold out last week. Um, we're we're looking at an industrial project in LA. We're looking at um, a single uh, like a triple net leased big box name brand um, entity out of the East Coast. I mean, we're looking at a bunch of different stuff. The, 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 the connective tissue in all of them is we really want to, make sure that we're almost like an investor club, you know, like we want to make sure that the deals on our platform have the potential to do really well and are well vetted and curated, you know, bonfires here for the long game. And the way that we stay, we, you know, is by, by picking good projects that people make money on, you know? So what you would do is you would go to um, app.bonfire.capital or you could go to bonfire.capital and just, you know, click sign up and, it's going to ask you some basic information about yourselves, um, about yourself, and and we do something. We we're required by U.S. law to do something called KYC, know your customer. So we're going to ask people to put, um, you know, upload a selfie of them with their driver's license. Um, that's kind of the biggest hurdle for folks, um, but otherwise it's very. And by the way, every single financial platform has to do this. It's it's something that. Is required. So, um, you know, just getting over that and then um, browsing the platform and picking which asset you want to buy tokens in. So you kind of briefly mentioned that, you know, there's kind of an old way of doing things, whereas like, you know, having to register the property with escrow and things of that nature. Um, have you had like any challenges when it came to founding Bonfire, like that came from, you know, old red tape that you kind of had to get over? Yeah, for sure, man. Um, so the the biggest challenge to basically everyday people generating wealth is the Securities and Exchange Commission. And what I mean by that is there are these very arcane laws that base that are called um, accreditation laws that say that unless you have a million dollars net worth, as defined by you know marketable secure you know, liquid assets outside of your single your primary residence. Or you and your partner or spouse make $300,000 a year, unless you, you satisfy one of those conditions, um, you are not allowed to invest in private equity, venture capital, or institutional real estate deals. 
And it's, there's 9.4% of the US population are accredited, right? So it's basically the SEC is saying that 90% of the country is not allowed to invest in deals that will make more money than other deals, right? And they, and they do it out of the guise of, you know, oh, they're trying to protect, you know, poor folks from being scammed. Um, but it, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's a dynamic that perpetuates the rich getting the rich, richer. Um, and so some of these laws are just so, you know, backward and, and arcane that, and we're, we're following them, right? We're adhering to all the laws, right? We're completely above, above board, um, but it just makes it cumbersome. It, it changes the user experience. It, it just um, adds fees. So that, that's been the hardest part. Um, and, and, and just navigating, you know, how, our, our dream is for every single person on earth to be able to own real world assets because owning real world assets, you know, it, and when that compounds over time, you wake up after 10, 20 years and, you know, it, you have wealth. And it's like, and when people have wealth, I'm not saying money buys solves problem, like but buys happiness or anything, but what it does is it can help people get off the base level of Maslow's hierarchy. And instead of having to wake up at three o'clock in the morning and taking a two hour bus to stock shelves all day out of Walgreens and then coming home and missing, you know, your kid's bedtime and, and all that. It's like, it just gives people choices. And that's what our vision is for Bonfire. And it's, we're, and we're, we're, we're butting up against an old regime that doesn't, you know, that's based upon laws that are a hundred years old. Right. So that's kind of, that's, that's a big, that, that's what comes to mind. And, you know, it's interesting because <clears throat> Vivek and I, we both kind of been in the entrepreneur circle around USC and one of the biggest things they say for any students or just people in general that want to found a company is that to embrace the surprise that comes with it and constantly try to pivot. So, you know, obviously you said that you started Bonfire after having conversations with your friends. Was there anything once you really tried to start to get it off the ground that you said, whoa, this is not even something that I realized might might be an, a problem or something we want to go after. Man, there's there's been so much, so many surprises, so many challenges, so many, I wouldn't call them pivots, but but definitely sort of obstacles in the road that you have to, and as entrepreneurs, that's what we do. We, 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 we find a way through, you know, grit is an absolute critical characteristic of an entrepreneur. Um, you know, what would I say to that? Um, one of the biggest obstacles we're encountering right now is, is the resale of the tokens and how to do that in a legally compliant way. Um, and, you know, that that's something that we've just assumed from day one, people will be able to do, you know, as soon as, as we close a deal, they could be able to retrade them. And yeah, it's it's looking like there could be a, a lockup of a year. And again, that's all because of, of governmental rules, not, not because of us. You know, one of our first ideas for Bonfire was to basically be um, a platform where we would go out and buy real estate um, and basically be and then and then tokenize it and then sell it to people and then retain like a 10% stake in those assets. And we realized that that would be very capital and operationally intense. We'd be taking on interest rate risk, construction risk, all kinds of other risks. And um my co-founder to his wisdom was just like, let's be a technology company, you know, let's be a platform. Let's not, let's not get in the business of actively managing real estate. 
Um, and like so many other things, he was right about that. Um, but we were, we were kicking the tires of, of basically creating a fund. And um, yeah, we, we didn't end up doing that. So in terms of like your team, um, what are some of the main things you look for in terms of like, you know, personality or whatever it may be um, when you when you're like looking to recruit for your company? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, there's a lot of things we look for. I mean, I definitely look for high intelligence, you know, and 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 and, and past record of working really hard and solving hard problems. You know, what I don't necessarily hire for, unless it's a specific role that requires absolute specificity of knowledge around, you know, subject matter. Like I don't tend to look, I, I'd much rather, and, 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 you know, I've got other people on your podcast will have a different perspective on this, but I really like hiring super smart, ambitious people who are ethical, who don't have big egos, um, who are willing to roll up their sleeves and try things out. You know, we, we are an early stage company. We, we have to be willing to fail. And, and try things that don't work. Like that's the only way we'll figure out what does work. But we also will die if we make the same mistake twice, right? So we have to be able to learn very quickly from our mistakes. And so, you know, our culture is one of like, I, I'm, I'm a very demanding person, but my demands of people are for them to be excellent, how they define it, not how I define it, right? And so, because I believe we all have that within us. We all know, we all want to be productive. We all want to be our best versions of ourselves, whoever that is, right? And so I feel like it's my, part of my job is to help extract that from people. But what I don't demand, and I hate cultures that have this, is an expectation of perfection, right? Because perfection is totally unattainable. And yet what it does when cultures demand it, it's like it creates neuroses and, and, and it, it's counter, you know, it doesn't, encourage risk-taking, right? And so it just stifles innovation. So it's a fine line between, you know, really demanding excellence and, and not having that be perceived as per perfection, but I just have to kind of reiterate that again and again to my team. It's interesting you say that. I mean, I think that that's such a wise like opinion, but it's not, everybody doesn't think that way. Obviously people kind of think, you know, as a CEO of a company, you're the one to kind of define what perfection or productivity is, um, not the employees themselves. W was there any, I mean, did you have any, you know, bosses in the past or any mentors that kind of helped cultivate that lesson for you? You know, I had some really, sorry, I was about to use a swear word. I've had some really crappy bosses before who used to like if there was a typo like literally one boss who like would look would count the spaces between my period and the next word you know and like he was like why is there two spaces here where everywhere else is one I'm like I'm sorry like and so that just caused me to really shut down and like just be on like you know eggshells around him and I was just like you know what I never would want to do that when I when I have a company one day and I'll, and I'll just say this, you know, um, we're Blondfire is a very horizontal organization. Like I am a firm believer that great ideas can come from anywhere. Um, and oftentimes people of a different, you know, age and, and background and, and maybe geography, 
they, they can have a different, like they might have an insight into our customers that I don't have. So I'd be foolish, foolish to not listen to people, right? Um, you know, but culture itself, I do think is disproportionately influenced by the people at the top for better or worse. So if I'm demanding of the team integrity and keeping our word, and I'm not doing that myself, then there's going to be a misalignment, right? So it's a, it's a, it's really beholden on me to operate in as much integrity with what the values of our culture that I want them to be as possible and be the living, you know, embodiment of it rather than just, you know, <laughs> telling people that they have to do it, but then I'm somehow exempt from it or something, you know? There's like a Japanese proverb that I live by, that one of them, several, but one of them, and says, you know, the fish rots from the head down. That's very interesting. Yeah. And it's it's true. Um, so do you think like you kind of serve as like an example, like you kind of serve by, you know, example? I, I do serve by example for better or worse, you know, and I'm, I'm a parent of a four-year-old and it's like, you know, when I'm, and, and when I'm, you know, less resourced and, um, you know, if I haven't slept well and I have a daily meditation practice, if I haven't sat in the morning for whatever reason, and like, I, I was unskillful with my team a couple of days ago. I was really frustrated about something and, you know, that, that I, that wasn't a good look and I had to go back and make an amends, you know, to, I didn't, I don't, I'm a yeller by nature, but I, you know, was um sort of not seeking to understand, which is one of my, one of our principles, you know, I was, I was kind of being a little bit judgmental and, um, you know, I had to call myself out for that because that's, that's not how we roll. We want to roll at bonfire and, uh. So yeah, I do. I do feel I, I have to set an example for sure. So I want to switch the conversation just a little bit because one of the things that I found so fascinating about your past experience prior to Bonfire was that there was a large intersection between real estate and climate change, um, yep. which I thought was such an interesting intersection. And I would kind of love to hear more about what drives that passion for that intersection? Yeah. So, you know, climate change is my most, like it's my most passionate issue. Um, I spent 14 years of my career working, as you just said, an intersection of sustainability and buildings. You know, the built environment is uh, responsible for 30% of all carbon emissions. So the buildings we, we play in, we work, we sleep, you know, we spent a lot of time in buildings, right? And the thing that's both really frustrating and really encouraging to me is that that thirty percent, it's it's among the third the cheapest um, way of addressing our our carbon problem are in buildings. Like energy efficiency is much cheaper to do than putting new capacity on a roof, right? Turning off your lights when you leave a room is cheaper than putting in LEDs even, right? So there's a lot that can be done with behavior and, and, and education to people around like a simple thing, like in your in your dorm or your house, like one of the biggest, um, one of the biggest expenses and causes of, of energy consumption is a refrigerator. Well, if you keep your fridge and freezer, fridge, excuse me, your fridge full of beer, then the fridge doesn't have to work as hard because the beer itself will stay cold, right? It's like, so there's, there's like behavioral educational things that can be done 
Then there's technology, right? There's a whole suite of sensors and, and LEDs and, and just like, like new tech that can radically improve the efficiency of the building. And then there's like the systems, like, you know, the HVAC and, and heart. And so what I got down the rabbit hole was like, you know, A, how do we talk to people about, how do we switch the narrative away from, oh, you know, the polar, the polar caps are melting and the polar bears are going to die to like, you have an opportunity to make money by reducing your energy consumption and improving the net operating income of your asset, right? And, and flip the narrative away from something that's ideological that can, you know, people can get caught up in their own egos, egoic structures around to like, here's the opportunity to make money, right? And so that's why I did a clean fund in the carbon war room. Um, and I've, you know, I've done it in my own assets too. I, I try to make them very energy efficient. Um, and so it just fascinates me that something like the built environment, which is 30% of our carbon problem, you know, there's, there's actual levers that we can pull right now. And a lot of it's around narrative and storytelling, and, and we could actually make a pretty big impact on, on this, on this issue. So in terms of like looking for properties to list on bonfire, are you guys looking at properties that have the potential of being like sustainable and like renewable or is that what, what you know, I, yeah, I mean, we're, we're contemplating actually not, not pivoting, but, but putting on a, a renewable energy asset on our platform to see how our community would respond to that because renewable energy is a lot like real estate. You make an upfront investment and then, you know, you're paying, you're, you're getting repaid over time, effectively rents generation that you know, tends to go up in price over time. Um, and so there's a lot of, there's a lot of analogs and, you know, real estate, quote unquote, as an asset class is very heterogeneous, right? You have hotels, which is really like an operating business. And, and, you know, then you can go to multifamily, which is very different than like industrial, right? Which is different than a cell phone tower. And yet those are all considered real estate. So why shouldn't renewable energy generation be on our platform? And I, um, and we're just, we really want to find good deals right now that, you know, where there's an operator or sponsor who'd be open to us tokenizing an allocation into it. And that it's a deal that our community get really, really excited about. So yeah, we're still figuring out what our community wants, you know, and I don't want to be preachy and tell people that they should want something that they don't want. Right. So we're, 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 we're still figuring that out, but yes, we are highly looking at um, renewable energy. And inevitably, once you kind of hone in on what exactly your customer wants and go from there, one of the, the biggest things is obviously being able to scale the business in some form. And one of the things that I found that was really interesting about your time at Clean Fund was that you were able to really have a lot of success in scaling um, a, lot of, a lot of these energy efficient projects. So what lessons did you take from that experience now to your time at Bonfire? So I'll tell you about Clean Fund because it's a couple of different ways of looking at my time there. You know, the 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 big talking point that I'll, I'll, I use sometimes is like, you know, we grew from, I think we did 1.8 million of business the year before I came to 94 million my last year there. And we did the first industry, the first something called a 144A securitization and a whole bunch of firsts for the industry. Um, the first $10 million project, 20, 30, et cetera. And so 
we were like, oh, well, that's that sounds really successful. Like, wow, like what consistent growth you had. And I'm like, no, it wasn't. Yeah, um, it was actually we sputtered along for a couple of years and then we had hockey stick growth. And the reason why we sputtered along is we were going, we we're knocking on portfolio um, owners' doors and saying, hey, your buildings are leaking energy. We can give you an audit and we can then give you this financing and we can improve your systems and da da da. First of all, never use the word audit if you're trying to sell anything, okay? It's not, not, not a word people like to hear. But putting that aside, you know, what we didn't have an appreciation for is when you think about your customer, you know, the customer isn't a monolithic thing. Like in this case, you know, we were, we had stakeholders, right? We had the CFO who, who might, who might conceptually be on board with this, but then you have the facilities manager who might be threatened by this project, right? You have an asset manager, you have, you know, all these different people that if you're not understanding how they look at the world and what they're you know, paid for and, 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 and motivated by or incentivized by, you know, you're likely to hit a dead end eventually and not know why, right? Why, why things get silently killed? Well, we, as salespeople, you know, I was, I was a BD guy. Like I knew that I just saw that developers started asking for our capital for new construction projects. And we went to our CEO and he was like, no, this, this, we can't do that. And it was like, we just kept hearing this from our customer like hey it'd be awesome if we could use your capital for you know we'll make these new construction projects net zero or super green but we need you know we want we want your capital and so i think we we finally listened to our customer and we're like okay we don't have a product for new construction right now but let's figure this out and when we did that we had explosive growth so i think the lesson is stay close to your customer you know and 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 I try through like our Discord um, community has about, I think it's about 3,000 people in it. I'm doing calls with people on Discord almost daily. And I never used Discord before I started Bonfire. And just staying in front of, staying close to our customers, asking them a lot of questions. And I'm, I'm, I'm cognizant, you know, of the cliche of Henry Ford said, well, if I asked my customer what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse. Yes. And, right, um, you don't necessarily ask your customer, oh, what should you build? You know, but you ask your customer, what problems are they having and how are they solving it, right? How are they solving it right now? And um, and that's that's the takeaway from my experience at Clean Fund is like, we have to stay, everyone in the company has to stay close to our customers. Like no one is immune from talking to customers, you know? And you sound exactly like all my entrepreneurship professors who just preach the exact same message that you are preaching. So you know, kind of taking all that information, what would you say is the best piece of entrepreneurial advice you would give to yourself as a 21-year-old? <laughs> Knowing what you know now, if it, uh, being an aspiring college student with a passion in real estate, what would be something that you would advise yourself on? Just go build something and get it out in the world. Don't allow analysis paralysis. You know, in, in some ways, this is like, I would say, don't go to business school, toss out the, the the curriculum from the business class and just go for, just start something, go try it, go, go, go create an MVP of something that's, that's kind of sucks, but kind of works and, and create a dummy webpage and a sign up and see if people like it. Right. All I'm not trying to poop on business school or business school curriculums. There's a lot of really good stuff in there. Right. Like I'm not saying that, but just have a bias towards action. Right. 
have a bias towards getting something out in the world and 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 just learning, right? We 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 oftentimes let the perfect be the enemy of the good, you know, and we we overthink things. And ultimately the customer is going to tell us whether they like what we're building anyway. So there's no point over-engineering it, you know? So I would say just, just have the courage to go out and do it. I'd say go travel if that's your if that's your yearning or if you're feeling you know called to go spend a year, you know, being a ski bum, like whatever you feel called to do in your early 20s, go do it. Because as you get older, it becomes harder, right? I just got back from a month in Nepal, but I'm married, I have a young child, I'm a CEO of a tech company. Like that wasn't easy, right? Um, but I always assumed that I would travel you know, later on in life, like forever. And, and it's, it becomes harder, right? So if you have, like, I think that there's a lot of pressure on young people today to go out and make money and get on their career trajectory and all this stuff from our parents because they're coming from a place of fear and they're seeing AI, you know, headlines about AI taking over people's jobs and this stuff. And it's like, you know, I've met so many entrepreneurs who attribute their success to, that thing, that 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 volunteer opportunity in Uruguay, or like that thing that they did that they at the time didn't make a lot of sense, but they just knew that it was something that was good for them, and they just followed that voice, and like it just opened up all these crazy doors. My friend, my friend Billy Parrish, founder of Solar Mosaic. I mean, they're a huge company. You know, he dropped out of Yale to go build. So like to move on a Native American reservation and, and figure out how to bring solar to the Native American, to that, to that community. Right. And he was like, oh, this is not, I understand the logistics of it. How could we get capital in? Right. Now he has a billion dollar platform. Right. That was just him following his heart. So that would be my advice is like, go live. Right. Whatever fear you have, put it aside. Like, listen to that voice of like, because now you're at an age of like, you're, you're, you're moving out of, you know, the, the academic ladder that you've been on for so many years. And it's like, you get to go decide what does it mean for your life? And what does it mean to be an adult? And only you can figure out what that is. Thank you for that, Joshua. That was amazing. Um, me and Eric have learned so much today and we've loved having you on. Um, if you ever want to come on again, please feel free to contact us. It'll be a great conversation to have again, of course um but yeah thank you so much yeah and apologies if i'm coming across this preachy at all i really i you know i'd honestly love to learn from you guys like what are you what are you interested in what are you seeing you know as like what are you interested in doing next like i don't know any way i could be of help to you like please let me know well, absolutely yeah. we'd love to kind of continue this conversation either on the podcast another time or kind of even often and i know fellow USC students that may be listening to this would love that opportunity as well. So thank you so much again for your time. Absolutely. And, you know, I love, I love talking to students and younger people. Like if folks want to reach out to me, um, I'm very accessible. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter. Um, you know, Joshua Kagan one on Twitter, Joshua Kagan on LinkedIn, Joshua at bonfire.capital. Um, you know, if any way I can be of help, please let me know. Well, thank you again, Joshua. All right. Thanks guys. You have a good one. You too. Yeah, you too. All right. Bye. All right. Well, that was a very insightful podcast. Um, what do you think, Eric? Yeah, I honestly loved it. Um, I knew I know he thought he was being a little bit preachy, but it was really it was anything but that. He was really the amount of lessons and advice 
that he was able to give us through his experiences was just so invaluable. So I'm so glad we got to have him on. Yeah, I mean, it was it was amazing. I think he gave us a lot of the raw lessons that we needed to hear, you know, so thought it was great. And it was, I mean, it was also like, I found, you know, I'm not a huge real estate person, but when he talked about how you can use new technology like blockchain to kind of <laughs> rewrite um, systems that are based in like old logic and old technology like real estate is, it made sense why something like Bonfire would be something you would want to start it, it the way he described it made total sense and i'm i'm so glad we were able to hear a story yeah agreed man i, I thought it was awesome well vivek have a uh have a good rest of may i guess since we have one day left um and uh to everybody else we'll probably have a couple more episodes throughout the summer so stay tuned and we will see you guys next time